Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu. And welcome to the 185th episode of the Nauticast, titled Old Man River, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Catalan 4, in which Catalan has to say goodbye to her beloved father, Hoster. Oh, but it's not all bad news, at least. I hear wedding bells. And I hear they got an open bar, too, so at least everyone will get nice and drunk at this one. Not much food, terrible music, but the the liquor keeps flowing. The red will run when we get to the twins. Our spoiler warning, as always, all published books, five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, prepare to be spoiled by anything and everything. Our question this week comes from our patron, Nathan, who asks... Hi, Emmett and Manu. I have wanted to ask a question for the start of the podcast for a while, and now I think I finally have one. While reading Samwell 2 for one of the recent episodes, I noticed Sam mentions two items that are subtle setups for big reveals later in the book. Tansy is mentioned as one of the lost spices Brown Benar brought north of the wall, and the other is the broken horn John gave him. Tansy is obviously a continuation of the build-up of the Lyser reveal, and we think the broken horn is the actual Horn of Winter. I'm not sure if these are considered part of George's threefold revelation. Most of these reveals have more than three parts. It's just the name that stuck. But do either of you have a favorite reveal slash buildup in the series, like the Tansy and Moon Tea and A Storm of Swords? For me, I do love the Tansy setup with Catelyn getting the Lysa portion of the story. John learning what Moon Tea is for. First mention of Moon Tea in the entire series is in John 2. Arya meeting the peach owner, Tansy showing its relationship with sex and children. And Sam mentions Tansy as an herb to use for medicine. All the pieces fit perfectly together, leading up to an unexpected confession from Lysa, despite George playing completely fair with us the entire book. So that's a great question from Nathan. So what's, what's a good example of that, Manu? What's your favorite slow build-up and payoff in A Song of Ice and Fire? A lot of choices. It's George's favorite trick, and he does it real well. Yeah, no, this was a fantastic question, actually, and one I really labored about. And honestly, if you did not mention the horn that was found up at the Fist of the First Men, I might have just gone with Mm -hmm. that, even though we don't really know how it plays out yet. Uh, The one I'm going to mention is maybe an obvious one, but the reveal of Reek. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that comes up in this Catelyn chapter is, does anyone know where Theon is? And unlike Poochie, no one's really asking where Theon is. (laughs) So every once in a while, you get a little bit of a hint of where Theon is, but not much in A Storm of Swords. You get a little more in A Feast for Crows because you get the Asha point of view chapters, but it's still kind of, we had this point of view character, and with the exception of, you know, Ned and Cat, who were very obviously murdered, um, every point of view character kind of comes back. But where's Theon? And, you know, coupled with the fact that it's probably 14 years or something between the, or 11 years between uh, time between you saw Theon actually as a point of view character, I think when you finally get to that Reek chapter, which isn't obvious right away who it is, you're like, what? Who? Okay. You can start to kind of piece it together, but it's really in the end, the last couple paragraphs when it says, I was ironborn, where I think you know, it really clicked for me who we were seeing here. Um, so that's the one that definitely had the biggest payoff for me. Um, but like you said, there's so many to choose from when you think about it. Yeah, that might be the best one by default, just because accidentally, as you say, just the length of time in between Clash of Kings and A Dance with Dragons that accidentally turned into the longest con of them all. But it it's a testament to how well George writes it, that everyone has the story about the first time they read that chapter and realized who this was. I, th- I think for me is when he, men- he mentions Kyra at one point, and I had just reread the series 
Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have remembered her because she's in like a couple chapters in Clash. But I just reread it and I was like, oh, no, I know her. This is Theon. <laughs> and it's that's the, the horrible pit in your stomach feeling you get there is exactly what George intends. And it's so good. So, yeah, great choice. Um, for me, I think since next up we're doing a Davos chapter, one of my favorite Davos chapters, I'm going to go with the uh, build up to Stannis showing up north of the wall because that is another one of those things like with the the tansy and uh, and the big reveal from Lysa about John Aaron that that's one of those things where George is playing fair with you like all the elements are in peace if you go back the first time reader though isn't almost certainly does not see it coming and is totally taken by surprise when those guys yell Stannis's name but if you go back like in the next Davos chapter Melisandre talks about this vision that you have with Stannis of the Night's Watch getting their asses kicked by the others north of the wall and then the next Davos chapter he reads the letter from the Night's Watch begging for help and then the Davos chapter after that ends with him just about to read that letter to Stannis. And then the kicker is like right right before the John chapter where Stannis shows up, the chapter right before that is a Jamie one. And just in passing, Tywin mentions that Stannis has left Dragonstone. And so you, re- you have everything in a row there, but every time it comes up, George distracts you with like two or three seemingly more important other things going on. Where like, you know, it's, uh, the first time you see that vision, Davos has just been named the Hand. And then when he gets the Night's Watch letter... He's, he's thinking about Edric Storm and how to save him, and that's what he's focused on. And then even when Tywin mentions that Stannis has left the island, it's only in the context of, I think he went to Dorne, so we have to make sure we handle Oberyn's friends well and give them Gregor Clegane's head. It's not even, like, what he's talking about isn't even Stannis. It's just how that relates to Dorne. So, like, it's all this obfuscation and bullshit thrown in your way to prevent you from realizing what's about to happen. And for me, that's, like, that's that's how you write a twist. Yeah, and I bet you will uncover a couple more as we go. I'm thinking <laughs> of Samwell 2, where um, Sam mentions, well, there are other places in Westeros that have dragon glass. Perhaps they can send us some. And it's like, well, who is sitting on the biggest cache of fucking dragon glass? I can see George, like, smiling to himself, writing those lines, knowing where the story's going. See, that's very good. It's it's all there when you go back. But, of course, the first time through, he's just masterfully directing you away from that. And I absolutely love that stuff. So thank you to Nathan for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. A sworn sword, $10 a month or up. Level tiers get to send us in questions. And also we recently made a change. All $10 and up patrons will get an invitation to our Nauta Slack. Uh, we decided to make that change, especially with certain catastrophic changes being made to twitter we wanted to give uh, people who are part of our community who enjoy the podcast another an alternate place to hang out regardless of what the the future of twitter ends up being so a great time to check it out if you've thought about it before but haven't pulled the trigger now's a great time over at patreon.com slash not a cast asoiaf where our patrons also get early access to our episodes exclusive episodes every month and more benefits but here we are with the storm of swords catalan 4 and let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis Catelyn thinks about how much she hates the crypt at Winterfell. Well, damn, that's cold, literally. But it's only because she prefers her family's funeral rites. The Tullys drew their strength from the river, and it was to the river they returned when their lives had run their course. In this case, the dead Tully is her father, Hoster. He's been laid to rest in a boat, dressed up in shiny armor and a cloak with Tully colors. His helm bears a trout with silver and bronze scales, and his hands are covered in male gauntlets. Honestly, it makes Boromir's funeral boat look like a piece of shit. Seven men stand by to push the boat into the river, one for each of the faces of God. Here they are, everyone. Let's get a big cheer going for the starting lineup of the River Run pallbearers. We got Rob, we got Jonas Bracken, we got Titus Blackwood, Carol Vance, Jason Malister, Mark Piper. Oh, and yeah, we got Lothar Frey. 
pinch hitting for Desmond Grell. Lothar showed up along with his bastard brother Walder Rivers within hours of Hoster's death. How convenient. Edmure, who spends the chapter being deeply immature even for him, was pissed off that Lord Walder sent, quote, a cripple and a bastard to treat with them. Catelyn says that's just Walder being Walder, and thankfully Rob was more diplomatic about it, welcoming the phrase courteously and making room for Lothar on the funeral squad. Catelyn is happy to see that Rob at least has a good head on his shoulders. After all, even if the phrase aren't Rob's vassals anymore, there is still a line on the Riverlands org chart linking them to House Tully. Catelyn watches from the walls as they launch her father on his final voyage, soaking in the beautiful natural environment she knows so well. Bran and Rickon will be waiting for him, Catelyn thought sadly, as once I used to wait. Well, those aren't tears in my eyes. It's just the mist off the river, I swear. The boat picks up speed as it enters the tumblestone and wind hits the sail. The blackfish gives the signal, and Edmure, or Lord Edmure as Catelyn keeps forgetting to call him, gets an arrow ready to shoot. His squire lights the arrow on fire, and Edmure shoots it, nowhere close to his father's boat. Edmure, like any good athlete, blames the wind and tries again. This time he shoots too far. Edmure is visibly starting to panic, as both Catelyn and the Blackfish realize, but when the latter offers to take the shot instead, Edmure insists he can do it. This time, he takes his time, squares up the shot, lets go, and misses by inches. Edmure Tully, everyone, the Scott Norwood of Westeros, a reference you might not get unless you grew up in Buffalo like me, in which case you will take that name with you to your own watery grave. The boat is almost out of range now, and so Edmure lets his uncle take the shot. The blackfish, casual badass that he is, gets it done so quickly Catelyn isn't even sure at first whether the arrow was on fire. Then she sees the flames bloom through the fog, and I gotta just read the text here. Watch for me, little cat, she could hear him whisper. Catelyn reached out blindly, groping for her brother's hand, but Edmure had moved away to stand alone on the highest point of the battlements. Her uncle Brynden took her hand instead, twining his strong fingers through hers. Together they watched the little fire grow smaller as the burning boat receded into the distance. And then it was gone, drifting down river still, perhaps, or broken up and sinking. The weight of his armor would carry Lord Hoster down to rest in the soft mud of the riverbed, and the watery halls where the Tullys held eternal court, with schools of fish, their last attendants. Honestly, I can't imagine not loving these Catalan chapters. Edmure immediately walks away from his family. Catalan wishes they could grieve together, but she knows he has to put on the Lord's face for his vassals, although she can see their condolences aren't reaching him. The Blackfish says there's no shame in missing the boat. Hoster himself screwed up his shot when their dad went downriver. Only the first time, Catelyn says, having clearly heard this story over and over and over again as a child. The truth is, she knows, Edmure is taking their father's death very hard. The previous night, he'd gotten shit-faced and burst into tears, regretting everything he never got to say to his dad. He asks Catelyn if Hoster had mentioned him at all near the end. Hoster hadn't, having been pretty focused on Tansy, but Catelyn tells Edmure that Dad whispered your name at the end. Catelyn thinks that Edmure might have been able to make the shot if he hadn't given himself the hangover from hell. It's true, but she shouldn't say it. The Blackfish takes her down to where Rob is waiting to give her a big hug, offering his condolences, as does Queen Jane. They both wish they'd gotten to know Hoster. Catelyn says that the distance was too great, and thinks that the same seems to be true for Lysa, who hadn't replied to her letter begging her to come. And gee, I can't imagine why. Catelyn also hasn't heard anything from King's Landing. She hopes that Brienne is on her way back with her daughters. Maybe Brienne sent a message saying so, but the bird got shot down. Oh, cat. 
Whatever you have to tell yourself. Lords start queuing up to offer condolences to Rob, but Catalin only has eyes for one. Lothar Frey, steward of the twins, nicknamed Lame Lothar by his relatives due to a leg twisted at birth. Those Freys, such charmers. He asks whether he might have a private chat with Rob at some point. Rob and Jane make some diplomatic noises about how they never meant any insult to the phrase, and Lothar makes some diplomatic noises back about how his father Lord Walder understands what it's like to lose your teenage heart to beauty. Catelyn just barely stops herself from rolling her eyes at that. She knows Walder too well to believe he has any romantic sentiments towards the women he describes as bedwarmers and broodmares. Still, the kind words are a good sign. Rob pulls Catelyn aside to talk privately, which she also thinks is a good sign. He's been doing that less and less lately. Catelyn understands why. Jane makes him smile, and I have nothing to share with him but grief. He seemed to enjoy the company of his bride's brothers as well, young Rollum, his squire, and Sir Reynold, his standard-bearer. They're standing in the boots of those he's lost, Catelyn realized when she watched them together. Rollum has taken Bran's place, and Reynold is part Theon and part Jon Snow. Only with the Westerlings did she see Rob smile, or hear him laugh like the boy he was. To the others, he was always the king in the north, head bowed beneath the weight of the crown, even when his brows were bare. Didn't think this chapter could get sadder, did you? And there's so much more to go. As they walk to the godswood, Catelyn notices how unhappy Rob looks. He's trying his best to be the perfect fantasy king, but he's just too young, and everything keeps getting worse. They recently got word about the battle at Duskendale, where a large portion of the northern infantry were wiped out by Tyrell and Lannister men. But Rob didn't even get angry. He was just confused about why his men went to Duskendale in the first place. Yeah, good question, Rob. I wonder what Roose Bolton might have to say about that. Rob is also haunted by the murders committed by the Karstarks, and he's begun to blame himself for not trading Jaime for Sansa earlier. He might have been able to marry Sansa off to Loras, win over the Tyrells, and change the course of the war. Instead, he's losing despite having won every battle. Winterfell has fallen and Moat Kaelin. Ned is dead. And so are Bran and Rickon. Okay, well, that's not true, but there's still plenty to be legitimately depressed about. Catelyn says that even the best leaders make mistakes, and that Ned would have been proud of him. Unfortunately, Rob has even more bad news to break to her. About Sansa. For a second, Catelyn thinks that Sansa is dead. But no, she's just married. Way to bury the lead there, Rob. Catelyn is shocked that Tyrion married Sansa after swearing to return her for Jaime. Apparently, Catelyn didn't get the memo that Tywin is back in charge in King's Landing. That's the problem with making deals with interim leadership. Catelyn wishes she'd let Lysa kill Tyrion, because clearly that would mean Sansa could come home safe. Again, whatever you gotta tell yourself. Catelyn wonders why the Lannisters would do this, and Rob cuts to the heart of it. With his brothers dead, again, citation needed, Sansa is his heir, and so Winterfell would fall under Lannister control if anything should happen to him. Catelyn says that if anything happened to Rob, she would lose her mind. Rob says, oh, he's not dead yet, you two are really tempting the gods right now. You really shouldn't be doing this so close to a weirwood. Catelyn begs Rob to consider surrendering to avoid that sorry fate. He wouldn't be the first king to do it. Hell, he wouldn't even be the first Stark king to do it. His own ancestor, Torin Stark, the last king in the north, bent the knee to Aegon the Conqueror when the alternative was feeding his army to Beleriand's dragonfire. Catelyn argues that the Lannisters will accept Rob's surrender because they have Sansa as a hostage to ensure his good behavior, while the Ironborn are the more dedicated enemies who will try to wipe out both Rob and Jane. You, uh, you sure about that, Cat? I feel like you might have this backwards. Rob won't even consider it, though, and he is outraged that Catelyn is willing to cut a deal with the Crown. 
The Lannisters killed my father. Do you think I've forgotten that? I don't know. Have you? Catelyn had never struck her children in anger, but she almost struck Rob then. It was an effort to remind herself how frightened and alone he must feel. You are king in the north. The choice is yours. I only ask that you think on what I've said. The singers make much of kings who die valiantly in battle. But your life is worth more than a song. To me, at least. Who gave it to you? She lowered her head. Do I have your leave to go? Yes. He turned away and drew his sword. What he meant to do with it, she could not say. There was no enemy there. No one to fight. Only her and him, amongst tall trees and fallen leaves. There are fights no sword can win, Catelyn wanted to tell him, but she feared the king was deaf to such words. See? I told you it would get sadder. Rob is still grumpy at dinner, and if anything, Edmure is even worse. Thankfully, Lothar Frey is here to be the life of the party, telling funny stories about Lord Hoster, praising Rob and Edmure for their leadership, and even comforting Catelyn about Bran and Rickon. What a good guy. Clearly the one nice Frey. Then again, he's also come bearing even more bad news for the Starks. It's just tragedy all the way down. Lothar says they've had a letter from Big Walder and Little Walder. You remember them, the terrifying little brats who were being fostered at Winterfell back in Clash of Kings. They write that there's been a big battle, and Winterfell has been burned. Your northern lords tried to retake it from the Ironmen. When Theon Greyjoy saw that his prize was lost, he put the castle to the torch. Oh, so you're a liar. Lothar the lying liar. Unfortunately, some of what Lothar has to say is true. Sir Roderick is dead, along with many of the people of Winterfell. Somehow the Starks still have room for more grief in their hearts. Rob tries and fails to hide his tears, while Catelyn thinks sadly of Sir Roderick, that dear, brave, loyal old soul. Oh, but there's good news as well. Some of the small folks survived along with the Walders, and were led away to the Dreadfort by Ramsay. Did I say good news? Yeah, not in this chapter. Rob is confused. He had heard that Ramsay was dead. Lothar, the lying liar who lies, says that the fog of war produces many false reports. Yeah, including yours. Rob asks what happened to Theon. That, Lothar says, he doesn't know. He recommends that Rob ask Roose Bolton about it. That, or watch season 3 of Game of Thrones, whichever's easier. Lothar finally notices that he has made these extremely sad people even more sad, and offers to let them grieve for a bit before getting back to politics, please. But Rob wants to get this over with, and so does Edmure. Lothar says that his father, Lord Walder, you may have met him, has agreed to a marriage pact with Edmure that will bring the phrase back into Rob's camp if, and only if, Rob comes to the twins to apologize to them in person. Alarm bells immediately go off in Catelyn's head, but Rob says it seems like a fair deal to get the phrase on his side of the war again. Lothar officially offers Edmure the hand of his sister, Lady Roslyn. Edmure, being Edmure, immediately starts trying to weasel out of it. Can't I meet her first, or wait until the war is done? No, Lothar says, you might die before then, or Lord Walder might, and he wants to see Rosalind married off before that. Walder Rivers finally speaks up to be the bad cop, and my grandfather has come to mislike lengthy betrothals. I cannot imagine why. Rob gave him a chilly look. I take your meaning, Rivers. Pray excuse us. After the phrase leave, Edmure starts whining as only he can. Why isn't his word good enough, and why can't he choose his own wife from among Walder's many, many, many daughters and granddaughters? Surely they can just negotiate a little more. Edmure's family gradually disabuses him of this dumbass notion. Catelyn says they've wounded Walder's pride. The Blackfish says they can't afford to wait, and Rob agrees, saying he has to get back to the North ASAP to find out what really happened up there. Catelyn says Edmure has to accept the offer. 
He shoots back that he doesn't see her lining up to marry Walder. Catelyn says that Walder's current wife is still very much alive, and is thankful for that in her thoughts, knowing that otherwise she might have wound up the MILF on the menu to make this deal happen. The Blackfish said, I'm the last man in the Seven Kingdoms to tell anyone who they must wed, nephew. Nonetheless, you did say something of making amends for your Battle of the Fords. I had in mind a different sort of amends. Single combat with the Kingslayer. Seven years of penance as a beckoned brother. Swim in the sunset sea with my legs tied. When he saw that no one was smiling, Edmure threw up his hands. The others take you all. Very well. I'll wed the wench as amends. And that is A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 4. What did you make of this one, Manu? The specter of death hangs heavy over this chapter. It starts with the funeral and ends with steps towards the sealed fates of Rob and Catelyn. And all throughout, ghosts real and false are conjured. Ned, Sir Roderick, Bran, Rickon, maybe even Arya, too. Most of all, Winterfell. King Rob losing his ancient castle is one thing. It being burned down is something else. This, this chapter hurts, man. Hard to put it any other way. It's one of George's richest, from the beautiful imagery of Hoster's funeral, with a dash of light comedy from Edmure, giving way to the crumbling political reality of the Stark cause, the very detailed moving parts of betrothals, battles, and bad news. Winter is coming very soon, with wine and drums and hoopla not far off in the distance, but the destination is unmistakable. Catalan's story in A Storm of Swords is a tragedy, a work of art built around human suffering, designed to create a catharsis, a great emotional purge for the audience. And it's, it's just perfect, a perfect tragedy in its tone and execution. Every beat hits and transitions us smoothly into the next one. Every chapter leading up to the Red Wedding is written to prime us for that purge, not only in terms of plot logistics, but in terms of tone. The sense of dread, sorrow, regret, hopelessness, and loss has been well established over the first three Catalan chapters, and now we get maybe the most emotionally affecting one yet. As you were saying, Catalan 4, it's an open wound. It's all about characters trying, and usually failing, to repress the feelings fighting their way to the surface. Whether it's Rob, Edmure, or Catelyn herself, everyone is having trouble playing their public roles, because the gods fashioned them for love, which, as Maester Aemon said, is their great tragedy, as well as their great glory. Catelyn III, the, the Karstark execution chapter, that was all about the gothic horror imagery. This one is more melancholy. It's less about blood and more about tears. Our friends at the old Storm of Spoilers podcast used to hand out the Catelyn Stark Memorial Most Ironic Statement Award, <laughs> and this chapter opens with a doozy of one. It was to the river they returned when their lives had run their course. Catelyn Stark is sadly only a handful of chapters away from being returned to the river following the massacre at the Twins, though I guess it's debatable whether her life has run its course by the time Beric and his men find her. They keep that river running, for better or for worse. And yeah, this is the internal narrative of House Tully. This is their mythology. The story they tell themselves about themselves. The circle of life, which never ends because it never began. We draw strength from the river, Catelyn thinks, and so we give ourselves to it when that strength is spent. In all likelihood, George named the Tully Castle in honor of James Joyce's novel Finnegan's Wake. The first word of the wake is river run. I say word even though river run isn't actually a word in English. Joyce was always pushing at the borders of language, and Finnegan's Wake is his most formally radical work. He basically invented his own language of portmanteaus and nonsense words, all of which 
almost makes sense, but not quite. They look like recognizable words, but the the syllables are switched around or there's a letter missing or changed. It's a way of breaking down the reader's relationship to the text by bringing the subconscious aspects of reading up to the conscious level. You feel your brain filling in the gaps, creating meaning out of the nonsense. While Joyce's dense prose in his masterpiece Ulysses was about capturing the full sweep of life as it unfolds over a single day, Finnegan's Wake belongs to the night. It's written like a dream, and as the title indicates, Finnegan's Wake, it captures the hazy in-between feeling of waking up from a dream, in which reality doesn't seem quite real. But every word has two meanings for Joyce, at least two if not more, and the wake in Finnegan's Wake can also refer to a funeral. Language is breaking down because these are the last thoughts of a dying man, losing his grip on reality. Maybe life is the dream, and when we die, we wake up. It makes me think of Maester Eamon's beautiful monologue in A Feast for Crows. Death should hold no fear for a man as old as me, but it does. Isn't that silly? It is always dark where I am, so why should I fear the darkness? Yet I cannot help but wonder what will follow when the last warmth leaves my body. Will I feast forever in the Father's golden hall, as the Septons say? Will I talk with Egg again, find Daron whole and happy, hear my sisters singing to their children? What if the horse lords have the truth of it? Will I ride through the night sky forever on a stallion made of flame? Or must I return again to this veil of sorrow? Who can say, truly? Who has been beyond the wall of death to see? Only the whites. And we know what they are like. We know. Death is the ultimate unknown. And one of the reasons humans love telling stories so much is that it's how we deal with death. It gives us a shape a context, a way of conceptually reconciling our lives with whatever comes next, if anything comes next. Maybe it's all a circle. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Nature does not know extinction. It only knows transformation. That opening word, River Run, in Finnegan's Wake isn't capitalized. And at the end, you find out why. It's the middle of a sentence. It picks up right where the book ends. It goes all the way back around. Finnegan's Wake is a circle. The end leads you right back to the beginning, like how Pink Floyd's The Wall ends with a voice saying, isn't this where, and begins with that voice finishing the sentence, we came in. Or look at Star Wars. C-3PO gets the last line of dialogue in the prequels, and he gets the first line of dialogue in the original trilogy. It's that connective tissue forming parts into a whole that we long for in face of the reality that our own stories end, and they all end the same way. So Catalan draws strength from the river, flowing on forever, telling herself that life works the same way. It's the power of metaphor at work. This chapter is our farewell not only to Hoster, but to River Run, at least for a long while. We've spent seven Catalan chapters in a row here, in her childhood home, all through the back half of the last book and the front half of this one. From here, she heads off to her fate at the Twins. By the time Jamie's POV brings us back to River Run, late in A Feast for Crows, everything has changed. The men sending Hoster downriver now will have either bent the knee to the Lannisters or be under siege by those who have. Edmure will be outside the castle looking in, instead of inside looking out as he is here, and he'll be wearing a noose around his neck. On reread, this feels more than ever like an end to the glory days, and the way George writes it feels like Catelyn is clinging to every detail, trying to make it last, trying to etch it into her memory for the long winters to come. 
Those details come to life through George's imagery, from the final dress of Lord Hastertully to the mist hanging like wisps of memory on the river to the giant red bloom of fire consuming the corpse, refracting through the mist in pinks and oranges. Feels like time is standing still for Catelyn, and in that moment, we the reader can take in all those details. That include the red and blue colors on Hoster Tully's arms and banners, blood and water, the riverlands at war. This language continues later on, once Hoster's boat is on its way downstream, the blue-white current of the tumblestone into the red-brown flow of, what else? The Red Fork. Water flow, blood flow, much like wine will flow at the end of this narrative branch. Yeah, that's great. I love love the imagery in this scene. It's so beautiful and like tangible. You can really see it. You can really imagine yourself there. And it's it's written very differently from the the shocking, violent death scenes for which the story is so famous. Your red weddings, your purple weddings, the assassinations of Renly and Jon Snow and Elsie Mormont a couple chapters back. This is more like Maester Aemon's death, to bring him up again, where you see it coming a long way off. You've been watching them die for a while. And just like with Maester Aemon, we don't even see Hoster die. In both cases, the chapter opens on their funeral. It's not a surprise to any of the other characters either, and since it's not happening in a, a battle or a coup or anything like that, they have the space to prepare, take their time, do it right, as he would have wanted. Catelyn specifically contrasts the Tully funeral rites with the cold crypts of the Kings of Winter at Winterfell. This calls back to the beginning of her story, the very first line of her very first POV chapter. Catelyn had never liked this godswood. Part of this is just that Riverrun is home for Catelyn, in a way Winterfell never was. This was the backdrop for her idyllic childhood memories, whereas Winterfell is the place she was forced to grow up. But it's also specifically that the North seems all gloom and doom to Catelyn, with none of the beauty that defines the Riverlands for her. She never really saw that there is a stark beauty, so to speak, in the North, and while the crypts might be cold and forbidding to outsiders, they were a source of life for Bran. They allowed him to literally rise from the dead at the end of the last book, that chapter you came on for. Catelyn has good reason, though, to associate the Kings of Winter with a cold death from which there was no return. She's terrified that's about to happen to Rob, that he'll die a, a kind of wrong death, which won't allow the circle of life to continue as it should. Even in death, there's a performance of politic and power at play. We have only seen Lord Hoster as a shell of a man, a dying corpse barely capable of stringing two words together. But here, in his last public appearance, he's resplendent in his silver and bronze, gauntlets and shields and hunting horn to make him look fierce again. The withering old man is not the image that will endure. His last words being Tansy and not Edmir or Liza or Cat will only be remembered by his eldest daughter and not for that much longer. The Maester's writing Fire and Blood Volume 3 will speak of a strong lord who held the Riverlands together through war, engineering marriages that helped save the realm. The actual cost and trauma to that will be left unwritten, most likely at least. The incredibly well-ordained lord also serves as a stark contrast to all the random bodies we've seen floating down the stream in other chapters, namely the Jamie ones, or even Catelyn's defiled body after the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. This, this dignity in death is denied to so many. That's part of why the Brotherhood is so pissed off, so haunted and enraged by everyone on their list of the dead. It's not just that their loved ones are dead. Valor Margulis, after all, they're all going to go sometime. It's that their entire society is acting like those deaths don't matter. There's no closure to be had. 
A couple Arya chapters from now, the Brotherhood will visit a village wiped out by Hoster Tully during Robert's Rebellion to punish one of his lords who stayed loyal to the Targaryens. On a more intimate level, Catelyn has only recently become aware that her father forced an abortion on Lysa in order to, once again, hold the Robert's Rebellion coalition together. Hoster is not someone like Joffrey or Ramsay who enjoys causing pain in itself. He did it all in the name of what he thought of as the greater good. But the consequences linger. That village is still empty. As one of the Brotherhood points out, the local lord got his pardon after Robert won the throne, but that didn't help the dead any. And what Hoster did to Lysa wound up contributing directly to the War of Five Kings, thanks to Littlefinger. All of Hoster's self-justifications withered along with his flesh. His last word was tansy, desperate for a forgiveness that is not coming. And I love that comparison you made to Fire and Blood, like the canon will now reflect that Hoster spoke movingly about his heir, Edmure. Only Catelyn knows the truth. She takes that to the grave and beyond. Tully's ferry to the afterlife is shepherded by seven Sharons, and it's there that the politics, the Game of Thrones, works its way into ceremony. One of the seven chosen to put Hoster to, to sea is lame Lothar Frey, envoy from the twins, as a sign of goodwill and also because the Freys were the most significant of Tully Bannermen. George does his tried-and-true rule of three in building to the Frey dinner, discussion of their arrival here at the funeral, a request to parlay shortly after the procession, and finally the dinner at the end. Walder Frey sent Lothar Frey and Walder Rivers to treat with King Rob, a cripple and a bastard in service of the Riverland's most broken thing, a deliberate slight, a peevish revenge as Catelyn calls it. The juxtaposition of Edmure's rage, nay, Lord Edmure, because I, like Catelyn, will need some time <laughs> to adjust to that, to Rob's reserve can't be missed, even if we here on the podcast like Edmure Tully. Rob, despite his youth, has been playing the role of Lord and King for longer than Edmure, and knows his camp can't brook any insult against House Frey, or any more insult, rather, against House Frey. Well, that's what they think, at least. We know it kind of really doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> like Catelyn says, Rob has learned a rough wisdom. As with his dad, dead Ned who lost his head, Rob is often framed as too stubborn or short-sighted to be an effective politician. I think the truth is closer to Jamie's monologue in the last book. No matter what you do, you're betraying one oath or another. It's not so much that Rob scorns diplomacy or soft power, it's more that he has multiple incentives to follow, and he doesn't always choose among them wisely. Here we see that Rob knows full well what he has to do in order to win over the phrase. It might make all the difference, yeah, in a world where, had, where they hadn't already decided to murder him. Something that always stood out to me in this chapter was Rob having a, a quiet word with Desmond Grell, getting him to step aside and let Lothar Frey help push the funeral boat instead. That's kind of heartbreaking, right? Desmond Grell served Hoster faithfully for, well, basically his entire adult life, it seems like. He's the guy who kept making bawdy jokes to Catelyn on her wedding night and then apologizing. He's the Riverlands equivalent of Sir Roderick. If anyone deserves to be part of this ceremony, he does. Instead, he has to stand aside to make room for a fray. That's bad enough on first read when you already know how much Hoster hated the phrase. It's galling on reread when you can see the Red Wedding coming, that Lothar dares to replace a loyal man like Sir Desmond who actually loved Hoster. The funeral rites of House Tully borrow from a couple real-world cultures, most famously Norse ones. A ship burial was often reserved for individuals of high honor or importance, and they were often buried with grave goods, the term for all the shit that person owned, such as the gauntlets and armor and shield we see here. 
Often these possessions were included in order to preserve class status in the afterlife. As Hoster was a high lord in this world, may it be so in the next. Cremation was a separate form of Norse burial, set forth in the Yelinga or King Saga written by the poet Snorr Sturluson in 1225. Thus Odin established by law that all dead men should be burned, and their belongings laid with them upon the pile, and the ashes be cast into the sea or buried in the earth. Thus, said he, everyone will come to Valhalla with the riches he had with him upon the pile, and he would enjoy whatever he himself had buried in the earth. The ceremony also reminds me of the Hindu tradition of scattering the ashes of the dead in the river Ganges, which runs through much of northeast India. Bodies are cremated, well, if you can afford it, another part of those class elements we talked about, and then ashes scattered into the river in hopes they can escape the cycle of reincarnation in an idea called moksha. But the ceremony, too, is about the people who endure after the passing of a loved one. We develop bonds with all the people we touch in our lives, called runanabanda, and part of the cremation and scattering to the waters is about severing the bond, of allowing yourself to grow beyond the moment and move forward. Life goes on, the river continues to run. Edmure is now lord, and the politics of the War of the Five Kings continue unabated, even in the standstill of grief. But for all the somber tones and serious discussions, let it not be said there there isn't humor here, specifically in the form of Admir Tully. If his ranting and raving about Lothar and Walder Rivers doesn't conjure a funny image in your mind, him missing his bow shots because he's too hungover probably does. Even Cat is in on the joke. How long will it take me to get used to Lord Admir, as if he wasn't acting lord already for some time now? Yeah, I don't think, even if Catelyn had lived, I don't think she ever would have gotten used to Lord Admir. Even decades down the line, she still wouldn't get used to that. And yeah, these Catelyn chapters sometimes get criticized as being too heavy and dark, but George cuts through it with plenty of jokes. That's even true of the Red Wedding itself. Like, until everything starts to go horribly wrong, it's just the world's most awkward dinner party, where everyone smells bad and the music sucks and the food (laughs) sucks even worse. Edmure here... Yeah, now he's trying his best, but he's just too easy to pick on. This whole scene is basically an extension of that song Thomas Evans wrote about his whiskey dick. No matter how much he tries, Edmure just can't shoot straight. Here's Edmure trying to demonstrate to everyone watching, aka the people who run the Riverlands, that they should be okay with him in charge. They all loved and respected his father. Even Lothar Frey knows plenty of good hoster stories. Edmure, meanwhile, had his victory at the Battle of the Fords, But then Rob and the Blackfish snatched that away from him by pointing out how much it screwed them over in the big picture. Now, they waited until everyone else had left the room, so Edmure's reputation didn't necessarily suffer. But Edmure knows it, which is even more important. For all that Edmure has big shoes to fill here, his primary obstacles are internal, not external. The main problem isn't that Edmure can't live up to Hoster, it's that Edmure thinks he can't live up to Hoster. This leads him to sabotage himself, assuming he'll fail and so guaranteeing it. It's a vicious cycle, a self-fulfilling prophecy that I am painfully familiar with. Like I've said before, I'd like to think that I'd be Mance if I was in (laughs) Westeros, but I know in my heart that I'm Edmure. As the Blackfish tells Catelyn, Hoster was not actually a flawless superhero to whom mere mortals like us cannot compare. Hoster missed his first shot. Brynden has the advantage of growing up with Hoster. He knew his brother before the legend took hold just like how Tywin's siblings have a more intimate understanding of him than most people. No one sees through you like the people you grew up with. For Hoster's kids, though, all they remember is that he got it on the second shot. That's how he told the story, 
and the story is all they have, because unlike Nuncle Blackfish, they weren't there. So Edmure is really nervous. That nervousness not only affects his aim, it makes him panic when he misses, and nothing makes you fall short quicker than panic. Again, been there. So now Edmure hates himself even more than he did before, which was a lot already. Put aside the question of whether that self-loathing is an honest reflection of his actions. As long as you indulge those feelings about yourself, you're not going to get better. It sucks, but it's true. Edmure failing to make this shot will not prevent him from ruling the Riverlands wisely and well. It's his conviction that he is innately not good enough. His belief that his failure to make the shot, which, as Brendan says, doesn't really matter, he believes that speaks to a larger narrative about himself that he just can't seem to escape. I love what you were saying there about Hoster not actually being flawless, which kind of just reminds me of the House of the Dragon season finale where Lucerus is talking to Rhaenyra and is like, I'm not so perfect like you, even though we very much know Rhaenyra is imperfect and we really like her as opposed to, say, Hoster Tully, which I assume we all are fairly ambivalent about at best. Um, But yeah, that's just kind of the way that, you know, children look up to their parents or at least parents that are present and generally loving, as I assume it seems Hoster was, at least with Edmure and Kat. And Kat still cares for her brother, as evident by her desire to hold his hand and hold him for an hour or for a night. But just like when Rob was marching south to war, she knows she can't just do that publicly anymore. He's a lord now, and he has to play that role in front of his men. And though Catelyn takes a shot at Edmure in his cups the previous night, she still cares, lying that Hoster said his name at the end. A lie not unkindly meant, something Sansa thinks about in her chapters, something Ned Stark organized his entire life around. And as an older sibling, specifically, I love Catelyn's internal monologue about how Edmure might have been able to pull this off if he wasn't working off a mammoth hangover. As we've seen before, Cat basically had to take over her mother's role after Lady Menisa died giving birth to Edmure. And like many older siblings forced into semi-parenting roles, she has gotten very used to saying, I told you so, and what did you think would happen? She's not wrong. But she also knows better than to say it out loud, because she knows it won't help. Edmure is stuck in his cycle, drinking to avoid his self-loathing, and then the drinking makes him fuck up, so then he hates himself, so then he has to go get drunk. Catelyn's thoughts here are more rueful than scornful. She's one of those characters where everything got bogged down with do you love her, do you hate her, let's fight about it online, form the camps, when I think it's more important just how recognizable she is. I've known so many people like her, and her psychology comes through so strongly on the page. It's so intimate how George writes her grief taking hold, the way her fingers reach out for Edmures to find open air before Brynden sees and takes them instead. That's so raw and real, something you can imagine happening at any funeral, with any family. Together they watch the fire shrink, fading into the fog. Every second he gets farther from them. And this time, he won't be coming back to see Cat watching for him. This time, it's a one-way trip. That's what broke Edmure down the night before. And I really feel for his regret, as George writes, for things undone and words unsaid. All the reasons for restraint seem so silly and stupid now. Edmure put off telling his father he loved him and wanted him to be proud. And now that conversation is just never going to happen. The really horrible thing about regret is the certainty that you will always feel this way. That you have done something truly irrevocable and you will always be that person. Catelyn wants to be able to comfort him. and She wants him to comfort her. But they can't. Because Edmure isn't just her brother. 
He's the Lord of Riverrun, and the Lord's face is stoic and stern, with no trace of tears. This isn't a private family affair. This is a political ceremony, a play they're putting on. Everyone plays their part, keeps a stiff upper lip. Rob and Jane are able to do that easily, saying all the right things, because, as they admit, they didn't really know Hoster. This is kind of abstract for them. They're sad because Catelyn is sad, which I think is also a very familiar thing. Like, maybe you have a distant relative, you met them once in your life, you barely remember, but your parents know them really well, they grew up with them, and they die. And you're not really sad about the person because you didn't know them, you're sad because your parents are sad and you know them. And that's, I think that's what Rob and Jane are going through here. Edmure has to pretend in front of his lords, let them offer their condolences so they feel part of this. They feel important, they feel heard, and yet... Catelyn can tell that Edmure isn't actually listening to any of them anyway. What an absurd farce this is. A pantomime of feelings while the real feelings are forced down into the dark. Notably absent, though, Liza, who not only did not attend her father's funeral, but has not even deigned to reply to the news of it. At this point for the first-time reader, we don't know this book is going to take us to the Eerie, so the question of Liza Aaron and her role in all this is still obscured for now. The book, of course, ends there with Liza spilling the beans, explaining all her actions, right before Littlefinger spills her out the moon door. But from Hoster, Lord of War's past, we turn to Rob, King of War's present, with Lothar Frey acting as a pivot point to the second act of this chapter. He begs audience with the king in the north here before stepping off stage until the dinner scene. Much of the rest of this chapter is a series of bad news for the Northern cause, or perhaps worse, no news, such as with Brienne's quest to exchange Jamie for Catelyn's daughters. That's just top of the laundry list of concerns weighing on Catelyn and her son. Duskendale, Sansa's marriage, ongoing grief about Bran and Rickon, a delicate dinner upcoming with the Freys, and eventually the sack of Winterfell. That's an incredible list of L's for a king who has won every battle put in front of him. I see a lot of George's questions about Lord of the Rings come in here. You know, Aragorn's tax policy and orc genocide questions. Aragorn won every battle in front of him, and through that, displaced evil and ushered in a new age of men. Rob has done the same, and yet his fate is the opposite, due to some of his own political choices, of course. So much fictional storytelling wants you to believe the strongest, most able-bodied warrior will rise above. Hell, the pedagogy of American history wants you to believe the same, that great men help steer this country to virtue and victory. But Rob's journey in A Storm of Swords posits the other end of the spectrum. What if you fought nobly and honorably and bravely and failed all the same? The bad news is peppered throughout the chapter, and with each bit, we can see the crown weighing heavier and heavier on King Rob, as if gravity increases with each tidbit. George spaces them out so we can see Rob's emotionality in both the individual and the aggregate. Like Duskendale. Why the fuck were they at Duskendale? It's not rage that consumes Rob, but disbelief. Rage is for losing a battle you had strategized, but he's struggling to understand why his men were even over there. It's so easy to gloss over these things the first time through, not really tying it yet to Roose Bolton's machinations. But George, as always, is playing fair with us, leaving these scraps that we can go, ah, right, when we come back to them on reread. And this is part of what makes The Red Wedding such a landmark in terms of story structure. As shocking as it is in the moment, George clearly thought through every tiny detail of how to make it plausible on reread. Every piece is in place, and he shows it to you even as he tricks you, like a great magician. 
Those men have to die at Duskendale. Not at the Red Wedding, but well before it. Why? Because Walder Frey's a fucking coward, that's why. Even taking his anger over the broken marriage pact into account, there is no way he would be on board with this unless the odds were stacked in his favor. As Tywin tells Tyrion later, they couldn't just assassinate Rob himself because he kept himself too well guarded. Ironically, Rob's military competence ends up being turned against him. So you have to get rid of his men, too. But Walder and Roose together would still be outnumbered by the Stark loyalists, unless you kill a whole bunch of them off. Between those who die at Duskendale, and those who die because Roose leaves them behind at the Ruby Ford long enough for Gregor to catch up with them, the Boltons and the Freys get the edge in numbers. But Rob doesn't have access to the information that the first-time reader does, let alone the rereader. That's great storytelling, especially for a tragedy, so many of which are built around misinformation and miscommunication. It's very effective to write Rob sinking into depression at this point, rather than hulking out. It fits the mood of the chapter, the sense that so much has gone wrong that they, they can't even be angry, they're starting to feel helpless about it, like Hoster's death symbolically stands in for the fall of his entire family and their cause. When the topic turns to Sansa, Rob's emotions turn to regret and despair instead. He should have nego negotiated for Sansa's return for Jaime when he had the opportunity, because with quote-unquote Bran and Rickon dead, Sansa is his heir and has a claim to the North. A claim that has now been usurped by Tyrion Lannister, even though Cat and Rob don't know, don't know that Tyrion had no part in the betrothal. This is one of the strengths of George's point of view structure. We understand Catelyn's rage at this betrayal, even if we know the truth of Tyrion's choice in the matter. Its dramatic irony played incredibly well for character's sake. Catelyn had pinned the last bits of hope, held the last bits of her sanity, to Brienne's quest to return her daughters. You can almost sense this stinging Catelyn more than the brief moment where she thought Sansa might have been killed. Catelyn risked everything on this gambit, and to have it be squashed, regardless if Brienne succeeds or not, just stings. Despite Catelyn knowing Tyrion better than her son, both only wish death on the little man. Rob's thinking is a bit simplistic. He shares blood with the Kingslayer, so clearly this is just who he is. Cat wishes Lysa had pushed Tyrion out the moon door many moons ago, but interestingly, like that story in A Game of Thrones, Catelyn is accepting a second-hand narrative about Tyrion that's a bit removed from the truth. That's a great point. I never thought about that, that this is exactly what happened when Catelyn snatched up Tyrion, that she'd heard a story that turned out to be false, but she assumed the worst, and it's happening again. And George is always interested in the stories characters are telling about other characters. And as you say, contrasting that with the intimacy of the POV structure. With Tyrion specifically, people always assume the worst, which, as we'll see towards the end of the book, convinces him he may as well be the worst, because he'll never be anything else in the eye of the beholder. People hang a mask on you. And after a while, it starts to feel like your face. It's interesting that Rob mentions Jamie here, because the same thing happened to him. Catelyn thinks desperately about where Brienne might be. We've read the Jamie chapters, so not only do we know the answer there at Harrenhal, but we know Jamie way better than Rob does. George also uses the supposed deaths of Bran and Rickon to great effect in organizing this stretch of the saga. In A Clash of Kings, those deaths haunt the characters in the back half of the book, driving Rob and Catelyn to choices they may have not made otherwise in regards to Jane and Jaime respectively. And it pays off emotionally when Bran comes back to life at book's end. In A Storm of Swords, though, the death of Bran and Rickon is used more for organizing the political than the personal, especially in the last Tyrion and Sansa chapters, and again here in Cat 4. George wants us to keep this material reality in mind as we build up to the Red Wedding. 
Once the initial horror of that massacre passes, we then get to wallow in how fucked things are for the North politically as well. Yeah, while Rob was already in deep trouble after the Blackwater and, you know, breaking his marriage pact, I think his downfall would have taken a much different form, at least, if Bran and Rickon were known to be alive. Tywin's plan to seize the North through Tyrion and Sansa's kids only makes sense if Rob lacks a male heir. And for all that Rob gets called a dummy, he immediately understands that's why they married Sansa off to Tyrion. He sees the knife coming, he just doesn't know from where. Same with Catelyn. She doesn't know enough to put it all together, but she senses Rob's death on a, an almost precognitive level, a sinking in her stomach, an almost prophetic feeling like Cassandra. And she can't take that. As with Hoster's death, Catelyn finds it hard to maintain the Lord's face, the pragmatic political perspective. This isn't about the king in the north dying. This is about her first child, and now seemingly her last, the baby boy she took with her into a strange land all those years ago. You are all I have left, she says. And then immediately she says, you are all the North has left. Because she knows she's supposed to think of that as more important. But it's not. Not really. The North isn't home to her. Rob is home. More honest is when she says she would go mad if he died too. And we know that's true. Just like winter, Stoneheart is coming. So despair, anger, betrayal, mistrust, confusion... All these emotions entangled with all this bad news, it inevitably leads Catelyn and Rob getting crossed with each other as the topic of bending the knee comes up. Catelyn offers a way out of this mess to pay homage and sheath their swords and turn back northward to protect their kingdom. But Rob is defiantly no on this. They killed his father. Something perhaps Catelyn forgot, Rob accuses. She thinks he's playing the role of boy now, but part of me kind of sides with Rob. Would Tywin Lannister accept Rob Stark bending the knee? After he raised up half the kingdom against the Lannisters, after he bloodied Tywin himself on the battlefield, well, not himself, but, you know, beat him on the battlefield, and after he invaded the Westerlands. Tywin may have been more willing to do so before the Blackwater, but now, after that W and alliance with the Tyrells in place, I feel like Tywin would be more inclined to take Rob's head than allow him to become vassal to the Iron Throne again, especially with the Lannister claim to the north in the wings. Rob draws his sword and Catelyn has no idea what he means to do with it. There are no enemies in the Godswoods. Takes me back to early A Game of Thrones, when Catelyn gathers Rob and Roderick and Lewin in the Godswood, and Rob is ready to lead a war right then and there before being chided down. It's the perfect symbolic punctuation point for a king who's won every battle, but is losing the war. His sword has been his greatest strength, but if there are no enemies to slay, his strength has been removed. Like I've said before, the relationship between Rob and Catelyn is one of my favorites in the story. It feels like a realistic mother-son relationship to me. I've seen these conversations. I've had these conversations. George has said he was interested in the perspective of King Arthur's mother, telling the story of a young heroic warrior king, but from his mother's POV rather than his. A Storm of Swords is really where we get the payoff for that, as Catelyn and Rob didn't spend much time together in Clash of Kings. It's a really complicated family dynamic, with different incentives pulling both of them in different directions. They're more honest with each other than they are with anyone else, and they have years of shorthand to draw from. You can feel the, the weight of their intimacy. They know each other so well, which means they know how to hurt each other as well as help each other. Throughout this conversation, George keeps emphasizing physical details, just like he did at the funeral, the way they hold hands and then pull them away, 
the way their mouths tighten. Catalan's barely restrained impulse to smack him across the face at one point. It's like there's still an umbilical cord connecting these two, even as Rob grows into adulthood. They both love that and hate that. Rob relies on his mother for counsel, even when he doesn't, you know, actually follow her advice. He respects her opinion, he takes her seriously, and as he says, he doesn't want to give her commands. She sees through the young wolf persona more than anyone, including Jane, who just hasn't known her husband all that long. The moment that really sums up their dynamic for me in this chapter is when Rob says he should have traded Jamie for Sansa like she said, tried to marry her off to Loras in order to get the Tyrells on his side. But then Catelyn absolves him for it, rather than saying I told you so. Rob is not so high in his own supply that he is incapable of self-reflection. Ironically, he'd be feeling better right now if he really was that arrogant. As Catelyn thinks, it's awareness of his failures that is dragging Rob down, like I was saying about Edmure. And like a lot of people in that kind of situation, Rob is catastrophizing. He's blaming himself for things he had no control over, he's coming up with alternate scenarios that were really never likely, and he's combining all his woes into a single narrative that feels like a curse from the gods. As Catelyn says, Hoster has been dying for a long time. Rob can't take that on himself. And while trading Jamie for Sansa would have spared Sansa a lot of suffering, probably Catelyn too, the idea of a match between her and Loras is a dubious one, and not just because Loras is gay. If the Tyrells were going to join the Starks and Tullys, they would have the same price they did for the Lannisters, a marriage pact with the king, himself. I don't think the king's sister would cut it. Catelyn sees that Rob is giving way to despair, and her first priority is preventing that, not taking a victory lap. If he becomes convinced he'll lose, then he will. More to the point, again, he's not just her king, he's her son, and it breaks her heart to see him torture himself like this. There's so much affection between the two of them, like the way Rob gets all protective of her when she thinks for a second that Sansa's dead. And yet, the reason Catelyn is so able to recognize Rob's despair is that it's a mirror of her own, and he doesn't want to spend his time around someone just as depressed as he is. The Westerlings make him happy. They make him laugh, they make him smile, they make him look as young as he is. He doesn't have to pretend to be older around them. And Catelyn knows her son so well, she can tell Rob is using the Westerlings to replace his ghosts. Rob grew up surrounded by brothers. Bran, Theon, Jon Snow. Didn't really matter to him that Jon was a bastard, except maybe that one time, or that Theon <laughs> came from the Iron Islands. The Westerlings have brought him not only a bride, but surrogate brothers. Rollum the Squire and Sir Reynald the Standard Bearer. Even Catelyn, on her own terms, thinks of Rollum as like a substitute for Bran, a found family. There's one person, though, that Rob can't replace. His father. Catelyn lost her father in this chapter, and Rob is still grieving for his. So he's offended by the idea of making peace with the Lannisters. On one hand, you can see where he's coming from. They killed his father. To bend the knee to the Lannisters would be an insult to Ned's memory. But with Renly dead and Stannis on the ropes, there is no plausible path to unseating Joffrey from the Iron Throne. So even as Rob lashes out at his mother, suggesting that she's grieving for Ned less than he is, what he's really reacting to is his own powerlessness. His inability to take revenge, seek justice, or tell the difference between the two. As he says, he has won every battle, but is losing the war. That ends up being the heart of Rob's legacy. Several characters repeat this line in some version or another. He won every battle, but he lost the war. He did the big damn hero thing like Robert. He used his wits and his strength to overcome his more powerful enemies. Rob made the stories real. And now he's finding out that it doesn't matter. 
All his military victories can be unraveled by everything ranging from political mistakes to pure bad luck. It's not even that he thinks his mother is wrong, it's that he's afraid she's right, and there's no way he can reconcile that with the obligation he feels to his father. Like you said, Rob drawing his sword even though they're all alone is a symbol of childishness and of impotence in the face of his challenges. But in a way, there is someone for him to fight in the God's Wood. The gods, who he blames for doing this to him. He can't fight them with a sword, though. Catelyn holds back because she sees through the mask to the frightened, lonely child she brought into this world. As she says, that is worth more to her than any song they might sing of his bravery and courage. The tale of the young wolf falling valiantly in battle could inspire listeners down through the ages. But Catelyn didn't give birth to the young wolf. She gave birth to Rob. And the romance falls away when it's you and yours who have to pay the price. Eventually, the dinner invite comes for Kat, which is a relief. She thought Rob may not text her back after their argument earlier. As someone currently on dating apps, it's very relatable, Catelyn. Rolam Westerling reminds Catelyn of Bran, which I think is priming the pump for the news that's about to follow to resituate us in the grief Cat experienced near the end of A Clash of Kings as more news of Winterfell is about to come forward. But before we get to that, we should probably square up the two frays here at dinner, alike only insofar as the banner they carry. Lothar Frey and Walder Rivers play good cop and bad cop respectively, one being the embodiment of guestly virtue, the latter being dour and sour throughout. Ever notice that the Freys almost always come in groups? Like you got Big Walder and Little Walder at Winterfell in Clash of Kings, you have Hostine and Aenys coming north with Roose, you got Jared, Rhaegar, and Simon at White Harbor, you got Ryman, Edwin, and Walder Rivers again when they put Riverrun under siege. Other than Lord Walder himself, obviously, you don't really have standalone villains in House Frey. It's more about how they function in context with each other. They show off the different faces of the family, dividing the labor among them. Hostine is the brawn at Winterfell, and Aenys is the brain. Little Walder is the big one, the swaggering bully. Big Walder is the little one, the schemer striking from the shadows. And here, like you say, it's good cop and bad cop. Lothar is the diplomat, Walder Rivers is the soldier. It's like how Varys describes Renly and Stannis, the silk glove versus the iron gauntlet. If the Baratheon bros had ever learned to work together, they might have been an unbeatable team. And we're seeing a version of that here with the phrase. Yeah, I like how you were saying how they always come in groups, because one of the few times we see them solo, like, say, Merit Frey or Sir Cleos Frey, they almost always fall victim to their circumstance. So They lost their buddy. You got to hold on to your buddy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're also like sugar and spice. The Freys want to be courteous enough for Rob to bargain with them in good faith, even if they aren't, but not without letting the insult they suffered be unknown. Cat chalks it up to petty revenge on Walder's part, which sure, but I think Walder Frey is also trading on his own reputation. He needs this negotiation to be peppered with the slights you'd expect of the late Lord Walder. That's why he sends the cripple and the bastard, instead of, say, his immediate heir or someone who performs able-bodied masculinity in the context of Westeros. If Walder's envoys were too nice and overly forgiving, Team Stark may have suspected a trap. But if they were too abrasive and rude, that would ruin the chances of luring the king and his men to the twins later on. So it's low-key, very deft choosing on Walder's part, which Catelyn points out to Edmure the night before, but how deft it actually is, Catelyn has no idea. 
And also if, say, Lothar or Walder Rivers were to be taken captive or killed in the process, like, say, if their plot or treason was uncovered, it's not the biggest loss, per se, in terms of the fray line of secession. Lothar is roughly 47th in line for the Lord of the Crossing, and Walder Rivers is a bastard, not at all, as of the end of A Dance with Dragons. That said, I don't think we should discount either Lothar or Rivers as unimportant. While they have a role to perform here at Riverrun, we'll learn much and more about them later in Storm and into A Feast for Crows. Our doomed epilogue point of view, Merit Frey, says Lothar is as dangerous as any member of the house, and he was intimately involved with the planning of the Red Wedding with Roos Bolton. It was even Lothar's idea to use the Reigns of Castamere as the slaughter activation music. Walder Rivers is a little more backgrounded in Storm of Swords. His main task during the Red Wedding is to attack the soldier camps outside. He also gets a brief mention in the prologue of this book. He is the Frey who judged Chet and sent him to the Wall in the first place. And during the Siege of Riverrun, even the vaunted knight and Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Jamie Lannister, takes pause in Walder Rivers' presence. That one is more dangerous than any of his trueborn brothers, he says in Jamie 6, A Feast for Crows. Yeah, that's great. You really laid out all the layers involved in this. First, you've got Edmure's instinctive response. that This is just an insult. He sent us the lowest branches on the Frey family tree. He sent us the dregs. And then you've got Catelyn, a level up in terms of awareness. She sees the provocation as a test they have to pass. Don't respond to the insult. Don't give Walder more reason to dislike us. Just let him have his petty power play. We rise above. But then on top of that, you have what we know coming back to this on reread. That Walder's power play isn't so petty. He's getting ready to kill Rob and seize as much power in the Riverlands and beyond as he can. So this slight, as you say, it's performative to a certain extent. Walder is doing what the Starks and Tullys would expect, so they don't guess what he's really up to. And this is key to how George writes the Red Wedding. He doesn't pretend that Walder is suddenly a nice guy. That would raise the reader's suspicions, and so the massacre would be less shocking. Instead, he writes it like Walder is getting his low-level revenge, which fits what we know of him. Only on reread do we know that, yeah, Lothar is basically the guy who runs the twins logistically. He was the project manager of the Red Wedding. And while Walder Rivers is just a bastard in Edmure's eyes, he would also be able to cut his way free if anything goes wrong. So on first read, we, we roll our eyes at Edmure being so uh, taken aback by this. We nod along with Catelyn when she says that when they go low, we go high. But on second read, we realize they've both missed the point, that they are in fact talking to two of the most dangerous and important Freys. Yeah, you're just hoping each insult is like, oh, okay, that's what Walder Frey wanted to do, and Rob and Catelyn will be just fine. He got his little revenges out. After some opening pleasantries, including a mention of Bran and Rickon again, Lothar has some news to share with Rob and Catelyn. Or news in quotes, I'll say, as the phrase Fox News the narrative about the sack of Winterfell. It was all Theon's fault. He put the castle to the sword. He burned it all. The surviving women and children, along with Catelyn's wards Walder and Walder, were taken back to the Dreadfort for safety, because we know there's no safer place for women and children than under the roof of House Bolton. And we get even more mentions of ghosts here. Sir Roderick, his daughter Beth, Micken and Farlin and Old Nan and Hodor for all Rob knows. Again, the specter of death hangs heavy on this chapter, as if the Grim Reaper has a ticking clock held over Rob and Catelyn's head after having taken basically everyone else from them. Mm, that's great. And you, you can see how they react, the many different ways they react. There was uh, earlier when we were talking about Duskendale and how 
you know, Catelyn expected Rob to get angry, but instead he was just depressed and confused. You have this the same here, this contrast between anger and sorrow. Which response is genuine and which response is something you have to perform? Rob doesn't feel the need to entirely restrain himself in front of the phrase. He's fine with them seeing him slam his fist down on the table. That's the proper response, like pulling out your sword even when there's no one to fight. Rage is a kingly, manly emotion. It's socially appropriate. But then Rob turns his head away so they can't see him cry. Grief is not a kingly, manly emotion. It's not socially appropriate. It's the same reason Edmure cried about his dad in private, but put on the Lord's face in public. Remember what Joffrey told Tommen the day Marcella left for Dorne and Tommen had the nerve to be sad about that? Joffrey said, princes don't cry. Well, where did he get that? He didn't invent that on his own. It's an idea he picked up from, well, pretty much everything and everyone around him. It's an expectation rooted in both gender and class roles. Only Catelyn sees it all. She saw Edmure cry, and now she sees Rob cry too. This is part of why her POV is so valuable. It lets us see these vulnerable moments in which social roles fall away to reveal these individuals who are hurting, but don't want to betray their weaknesses. Like I said, every element in these chapters builds towards the Red Wedding, in which the horror of loss becomes unavoidable. And all Catelyn can think at the end of that is, make it stop hurting. She spends her final moments thinking about everyone she's lost. And she does the same here, thinking of all the people at Winterfell, picturing each one, not all of them, not all my pretty ones lost. Well, thankfully for her, at least Hodor made it out of the list of people she lists off. Close call, close call. What's more curious about the news is the survivors were saved by the son of Roose Bolton. Perhaps even his bastard son, the bastard Walder Rivers, chimes in. Wait, didn't we kill him after we caught him doing some heinous deeds? Isn't he a monster and not likely to save women and children? What? Rob seems as confused by this as he did over the news of Duskendale. Seems like Rob and company have a lot of questions they need to ask Lord Bolton. The phrase are using the fog of war to their advantage as a veil to actively cover their own spread of disinformation about the sack of Winterfell. Throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, George, George has paid particular attention to how news spreads across the kingdoms and beyond, and how those messages get twisted by a translation or secondhand accounts, like a game of telephone. Here we have an instance where the phrase essentially get to craft news as they see fit, since no word has come down from the north otherwise. Rob asks after Theon. Remember Theon Greyjoy? First time through A Song of Ice and Fire, it stuck out to me how absent Theon was in A Storm of Swords, as we talked about during the opening question. He was just made a whole-ass point of view in A Clash of Kings, and his final moments in that book didn't strike me as his death. Davos came back after he was literally blown away, so I expected something similar for Theon. But the young Greyjoy only gets 35 mentions in A Storm of Swords overall, most of them in Catelyn and Jon chapters. That might seem like a lot, but over the course of this heckin' chonker of a book, it barely, it's barely a drop in the bucket. This, combined with his absence from A Feast for Crows as well, I think really heightens his return in A Dance with Dragons, the slow realization who Reek is after two books without him. That's a discussion for much later, but I appreciate how George gives us just enough mention so we don't forget him, but not enough that we necessarily have him in front of mind. It's a difficult juggling act in this chapter, right? It's about wallowing in your emotions, but there is also some business to take care of. There's some extremely important and complicated plot mechanics going on. There's a mixture of truth and lies in what Lothar says. 
And while the reader knows more than the Tullys, we don't know everything, not our first time through. We know that Ramsay faked his own death and posed as Reek. We know that he wormed his way into Theon's good graces before betraying him, while also wiping out Sir Roderick and the other Stark loyalists at Winterfell. And we know it was Ramsay's men who burned down the castle. But as first-time readers, we have no idea what happened to Theon. So the fog of war extends to us as well as to Rob and Catelyn. And it seems plausible that maybe Lothar doesn't know either. Maybe, maybe he's being lied to and is just passing this on without knowing. That's plausible enough to hang a first-time reader on. After all, there's no POV in Stark territory in A Storm of Swords. Other than Bran's first couple of chapters, and he's very isolated right now. In A Dance with Dragons, we have to pick up the pieces, which is part of why all the mysteries in that book are so effective. We haven't seen these people, these places in a long time. Who knows what they've been up to? Walder's demands, as relayed by Lothar, begins with the royal apology, face-to-face, which Catelyn mislikes right away. Again, it's a peevish thing to expect of Lord Walder, and that's how he wants it to be interpreted. But it's an easy enough demand to beat for Team Stark, and we'll get the King in the North under Walder Frey's roof. Next comes the betrothal of Roslyn and Edmure, which makes the latter shift in his seat. As Lord of Riverrun, he feels he should be given the same offer Rob was. Walder Frey is, is desperate for a familial bond to Riverrun. Surely he can allow Edmure a choice. But the, that leads to the next demand. All this must happen immediately, because as Walder Rivers bluntly notes, long betrothals and wartime don't mix. And House Frey, for all its issues, is valid in feeling that way. After the phrase are dismissed, we have the brain trust of Team Stark and Tully consider the terms. Rob won't explicitly force Edmure to take the terms, but there is no doubt that they have to accept if they have any chance of surviving and heading north. I don't really have a point with this, but I also think the history of marriage between all the people in this room giving Edmure counsel is pretty funny in that none of them really had a traditional path to marriage. Rob broke one betrothal to marry for love. Catelyn's original husband was out of inventory and had to be replaced <laughs> with a similar model. And Brynden Tully told his brother to fuck off and made himself a new banner instead of getting married. Isn't that funny? Like, Edmure is getting the most traditional wedding of the bunch. And then look at how his wedding turns out. <laughs> none, of, none of them really get the dream wedding, do they? And so, like I was saying earlier with Nathan's question about setup and payoff, George does everything he can to distract you from what's coming, even as he sets it up. Only on reread does this clearly stand out as sheep being invited to a slaughter. The only hint for the first-time reader is that Catelyn immediately gets her back up about Walder's request for Rob to apologize in person. And even that is easy to write off as one of Walder's petty power plays. Ah, he just wants to humiliate Rob, embarrass him in front of everyone so Walder can feel good about himself again. George also hides what he's up to by changing the tone, like he did at the funeral. After the horrible news from Winterfell, we suddenly shift back into comedy. And that works because it's rooted in Edmure's well-established character. As soon as the phrase agree to the marriage pact, he's trying to weasel out of it any way he can. <laughs> First, he wants to see Rosalind before the marriage, which seems reasonable enough, until Catelyn, who knows her brother as well as her son, realizes that Edmure is just trying to delay in the hopes of breaking the pact when the war is over and they don't have urgent need for the phrase anymore. Not only would that once again wreak havoc with Rob's cause, it would ruin Edmure's reputation as the new Lord Paramount of the Riverlands. You kind of have to start taking this stuff seriously now, right? Right? Nope. <laughs> Edmure is just that terrified of growing up. Commitment, self-sacrifice. He's more afraid of them than he is of any enemy army. 
He's even mad at Catelyn because he has to get married and not her. I love the bit where Catelyn thanks the Seven that Walder <laughs> already has a wife because she knows otherwise that would definitely be the deal. <laughs> the phrase good cop, bad cop routine is hilarious too. The way Lothar just spills words all over the place to reassure Edmure that he understands. He's just trying to pass on his father's perspective. You know, we're all friends here. And then Walder Rivers jumps in like a knife through butter to say that their dad has come to dislike long engagements. Why could that possibly be? For all that Edmure sputters that he should get his choice of brides and that Walder won't give up on him easily, the Freys clearly have the upper hand here. They can afford to wait. The Starks can't, or at least they feel like they can't, because they're not sure what's going on in the North. They need the Freys to get back into the game, and quickly. Who knows what Ramsay might be getting up to in the meantime? The Freys added fuel to that fire and now take advantage of it, trapping Rob in his own good intentions. All he wants to do is save his people, and that's how they get him. And that mention of we gotta get back to the north, we gotta find out what's going on, we gotta get back there, that again distracts the audience. and makes us focus on Rob's struggle to take back the north. That's something we'll hear a lot more about in the next couple Catalan chapters. Here's what we're gonna do about the Ironborn, here's how we're gonna do it, we're gonna get these allies, we're gonna put everyone together, and none of that happens. <laughs> but we have to believe it will. We end this very dark chapter on what looks like a ray of light. A door held open to salvation, but as soon as Rob and Catelyn walk through it, it will slam shut behind them. So, moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork, uh, we get the mention of Big and Little Walder Frey here. Lothar talks about them writing a letter as to what happened at Winterfell. And like we're seeing about Theon, I think this is in part George trying to keep these characters in our head so we remember them, so we're looking for them to show up again. Because they do show up again in Theon's chapters in Dance. And one of my favorite parts of Dance is the is the, the background drama going on with the two little Freys. How little Walder is starting to act like a mini Ramsay. But then Big Walder just murks his cousin and frames the Manderleys for it. Again, you gotta watch the Freys when they come in pairs, when they come in groups. It's always gonna be trouble. Yeah, it was always funny for me because in A Clash of Kings, I couldn't really distinguish between the two Walders. Because, you know, I just... Because they're both called Walder. Yeah, uh... Tweedledum and Tweedledee, but in a Frey version. <laughs> exactly. But then you come back to them in the Reek chapters, and you're like, oh, man, little Walder kind of really sucks. And then you find out that actually Big Walder might be the one who's actually pulling some strings and doing some, you know, Machiavellian work behind the scenes. I know that's something you've talked about um, pretty extensively in the past, too. So it's kind like, of fun. I do like that everyone overlooks because he's just a tiny child. So why would you think he's yeah. murdering anyone or has plans? But whenever he says, like, yes, I'm 59th in the Freyland of Succession, and I have pictures of the other 58 on my bedroom wall, and I look at them every night. That's basically him, and I do love that. Uh, so Rob gets word in this chapter that Robert Glover has been taken hostage by the Lannisters at Duskendale, and he reassures Galbert Glover, Robert's brother, that he will trade Martin Lannister to get Robert back. By the time we check in with Catelyn's POV again, that trade has been made. It's a small thing, it's easy to ignore, but it's important, because this is how Tywin makes sure that none of his family are Stark hostages prior to the Red Wedding. And Robert will show up again in A Dance with Dragons as an important player in the North. So even as George expands the story, he's always he's always squeezing all those minor characters dry for everything he can get out of them. Yeah, Micah would be so proud of him. Absolutely. Um, I always piece together, obviously, the part that plays into Robert and the later Davos chapters, but it had just occurred to me when reading the show notes, it's like, oh yeah, he did get the last Lannister hostage back by getting Martin. Uh, Lord Karstark took care of one of them just by killing him, so it didn't become... Very convenient. Uh, very nice of him. Uh, and then the last one made it back. So that is a very good catch. I didn't piece that together. But like you said, all these little parts are what make the Red Wedding such a satisfying narrative event, because it's not just a twist and these couple characters die, but you see how every 
layer of the political and military reality fold into the events that make the Red Wedding such a, like have such a strong gravity and orbit around it of these other events and smaller little occurrences. Exactly. Like a lot of like shocking, ooh, big twists in stories are like when you go back to them, you're like, all right, I know what's coming, it's gonna, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But the Red Wedding only grows in power when you go back and you notice how granular all the work is. Again, that's why I compare it to like a magic trick. It's all being done in plain sight in front of you, but you can't figure it out until you've already seen the whole trick. So moving on into uh, theory and discussion, this chapter is our introduction to Alothar Frey. And he's, he's a very interesting character. You were mentioning what Merit has to say about him in the epilogue, thinking about how Lothar is a, I think the phrase he uses is, an, a very amusing fellow to get drunk with, but how Walter does not trust him at all because Lothar, it turns out, is the smartest of the phrase. And I love the detail that Walter didn't do any of the actual planning for the Red Wedding. He just immediately outsourced it to Lothar because Lothar is the steward, which means functionally he's he's running the place. So he's he's interesting. And I wondered what you what you think might be in the works for him or even you know even beyond what happens to the character what do you think he wants do you think he has a plan do you get a sense of it i don't know i i mean i assume everywhere everyone somewhere in the Frey family is gunning for that top spot <laughs> at some level it's a good bet from um, what we can I, tell i think where i see him playing in is i do believe we are going to get that red wedding 2.0 and a little bit of that river lord revenge on house Frey. um it would obviously be very, you know, poignant for Lothar Frey to be there just because he was the architect of the Red Wedding. And then to have something similar happen to him would obviously be poetic in its own way, even if a bit simple. I think it would also be kind of fun if he's like the one guy who realizes a Red Wedding 2.0 is about to happen. It's like, wait, I've been here before. I've seen these signs. They're playing the Reigns of Castum. Oh, oh, we got to get out here right now. It's uh, what... um. Uh, Lyle Landley in the Simpsons mm. Monorail episode. North Haverbrook. Why have I heard that name before? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and then they all come and then and everyone just waiting. <laughs> exactly. I would love if Lothar, like, sees a trap coming and stays behind at the twins. He just goes, I'm sick. <laughs> Can't come along. Bye. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, it's it's a good bet that, that Lothar is, is gunning for the top job, given uh, how intelligent he is and how ruthless he is and how the phrase tend to be. Part of me wonders whether... Because, you know, you do have, like, you know, non-traditionally masculine Lords of Westeros. You have, like, a Duran Martell or a Wyman Manderley. You know, not everyone has to be barrel-chested and have huge biceps. You know, obviously, there's a variety of people who run Westeros. Part of me wonders whether Lothar is, though, maybe planning to rule through someone else. Maybe he wants to, like, be the, you know, be the, the Grima worm tongue of the, of, of the twins. Mm-hmm. Maybe he wants to be whispering into Edwin's ear or Blackwalder or someone else when they wind up in charge. A tiny note on the on the Frey family tree, that endlessly fascinating topic. Since I brought up Big Walter earlier, if you look at the Frey family tree, uh, Lothar himself does not have sons. He has uh, several daughters, and his closest nephew is Big Walter. So who knows if that's intentional on George's part or not. Obviously, there's a ton of Freys. They all got to go somewhere in the family tree. But I do think this is my slightly fanficy headcanon. I do think it would be very funny if the reason Big Walter is so ambitious and so focused on being Lord of the Twins is because... His uncle Lothar has been kind of raising him that way with a plan for Lothar to take over and Big Walter to be his heir. Who knows if that's a thing at all? I certainly doubt it's going to happen given what's likely to happen to the phrase. But what's one of the reasons I like the phrase again is that there's so many different kinds of them. That there's all these little archetypes and little plans like when we get to Feast for Crows and Edwin and Black Walter are scheming over who's going to take over for their dad. And Jamie's just like, I don't care which one of you assholes wins. You just need to work with me. I like I like the phrase for that. You have so many singular standalone villains 
in the series. People like Tywin, people like Roos, people who seem very solitary almost by choice. And then the phrase, just this this crab bucket, just this pack of villains all fighting with each other. I, I very much enjoy it. It'll, it'll be a shame to watch them all die. Yeah, it's very much like when we meet them in Catch Chapter in A Game of Thrones or meet them in Mass. It's like, how am I ever going to tell these people apart? And Even like Walter I was telling can't. you with... <laughs> and like I was telling you with the Clash of Kings when the two Walders went up to Winterfell I was like well they didn't really register as two different characters but slowly over this book <laughs> mm-hmm. but between this book A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons we find that individuality all like littered throughout and we find that this character is like this this phrase not so bad we really like this guy oh we hate like these 12 phrase like with all Ooh. our lives um, you know, and Cleos Frey got a rough, you know, hand of it. I mean, he kind of sucked, but he, he, he sucked in an inoffensive way. I wished him no specific harm. It just <laughs> exactly. really speaks to George's ability that he was able to take this huge gaggle of people who could have just been left as like stock characters and indistinguishable from each other. And now you can point to like eight different distinct personalities all within this household. No, that's a great point. You see that at the end of A Storm of Swords where it was, I think it was definitely very deliberate on George's part that... The phrase we see Stoneheart killing are the most pathetic phrase, the ones that are hard to hate, Peter Pimple, as they call him, and then Merritt. Well, yeah, Merritt, you know, he's not, Merritt's not exactly a sterling angel. He did happily take part in the Red Wedding, but he's just so like, oh, my life sucks, and I didn't get anything, and my family hates me. And it's just like, you roll your eyes at him, but it's hard to, like, see him as a war criminal or someone you're going to cheer for his death. And yeah, there are, yeah, there's the Dave and Lannister when Jamie reunites with his cousin at River One is going on about how much how much he hates the phrase and just goes, eh, Sir Perwin seems a decent fellow. Might as well keep him. Like, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, fuck you. Like, you know, it's, they, yeah, they start to stand out. And while I, you know, I don't think we're going to be made to empathize with the phrase the way we are with someone like Theon or Jamie. I do think individualizing them is in part a move on George's part to make us flinch when they all get massacred in a way where it doesn't, they're not going to be distinguished. You know what I mean? Like the mm-hmm. the relatively okay ones or the just pathetic ones will be killed along with the ones who are directly responsible. And that I think that I think is supposed to bring us up short. If, if not love them, then at least bring us up short. So that is going to wrap us up for our episode on Storm of Swords, Catalan 4. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits like early episodes, exclusive episodes, access to our Nata Slack, the chance to ask us questions we're forced to answer, lots of great benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com, and you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. We are wrapping up our coverage of Andor this week with the season finale. And afterwards, we'll be returning back to the Lord of the Rings two towers with of herbs and stewed rabbits. Can't wait to get back to uh, some good old Tolkien work. Um, I've been feasting off what Emmett's been doing over on the Patreon for the past couple months, but it'll be nice for ourselves to return to the movies as well. That's going to be great. I'm really going to enjoy that much as I've been loving the Andor coverage and really loving Andor, which I did not expect to enjoy as much as I have. And now, just as I am, it's going away. Heartbreaking. Um, yeah, that's great. And uh, so my most recent Star Wars episode is out for all our $5 and above patrons. My third episode on Revenge of the Sith is out on patreon.com slash notacast ASOIIF. Lord of the Rings, as you just mentioned, my next one covering book five, chapter nine, is going to be up for all $5 and above patrons uh, in a couple weeks. Um, And then next time on A Song of Ice and Fire, Davos reunites with Stannis, and 
I'll just warn you now, this is going to be a long one. I'm going to unleash like a 10,000 page doc on poor Manu. And buddy, you know, if you want to leave now, if you want to jump ship, no one would blame you. Oh yeah, you can get me to the fires. I'll just let you take that one solo. <laughs> I, I drop the leech and say your name, and somewhere he somewhere he dies. But no, Storm of Swords, Davos Four, absolutely terrific chapter. One of my favorites. Going to be a great time. We're really enjoying this this great mid run of a Storm of Swords. It's just nothing but bangers, nothing but heat, one after another. So uh, thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time in A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, Davos Four.